Remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians or Jewish believers who were either considering going back to Judaism. In other words, eh, I'm not sure about all the Christianity stuff. I don't know, are my family's still Jewish. Maybe I'll just stay with Judaism. Or they were settling for some sort of mixture of the old Judaism and the new in Jesus Christ. If you were to ask one of the Hebrew people of that day, one of the recipients of this letter, or, or even a Jewish person today that, that's practicing their, their religion, if you were at, to ask them the question, who's the greatest man? in the Old Testament. Now I know God, but man, the greatest man in the Old Testament. Oh, they might say David or Moses or Joshua, but I think they would eventually settle on Abraham. Abraham being the greatest man in the Old Testament. After all, Abraham is the father of Israel. He's the, you know, from Abraham came Isaac, came Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was all passed down. Abraham was the one called by God to leave his family, to take that step in faith to an unknown land. God gave him a promise. He said, I'll make you a great nation. He didn't have any children until he was 99 years old. So he was called by God to do this. He took this step and God did. He fulfilled his promise. And it's from that lineage, from Abraham's step of faith, that every Jewish person that would have received this letter and even every Jewish person today would come from. Now, the author of Hebrews has already told us how much better Christ is than the earthly priests. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. So he's already sort of set the stage on how great Jesus Christ is. But way back in chapter two, the author began to set the stage as Jesus being the greatest high priest. Way back then, he began to say and even said he's a high priest from the order of according to or from the order of Melchizedek, from the order of Melchizedek. As we came to chapter four, we learned that Jesus is greater than all the earthly priests. We, we, we studied that, we learned that, even greater than the one who would have currently been serving in the temple at the time this letter would have been received. He's greater than all of the earthly priests. It was written, Jesus is the high priest, it said, who passed through the heavens. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he was tempted as we are tempted. As we came to chapter 5, the author says, hey, there's certain earthly requirements a priest has to fulfill. And he told us that Jesus fulfilled all of these earthly requirements. The first one, the high priest is taken from among men and appointed by God. And he showed us how Christ fulfilled that. Another one, the high priest is able to have compassion on those who are ignorant, meaning uninformed, and those who go astray, all because of his own failures. So because he's failed in these ways too, he's able to understand that. He showed us how Christ didn't fail, but Christ was tempted, and he endured the temptation to the very end in all ways that we did. The, the, the greatest temptation is to never give in, because once you give in, the temptation goes away. But so he's saying Christ endured it to the very end. Then he also showed us how the high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. Well, certainly Jesus did that. He offered himself as a sacrifice, and we'll look more at that a little bit later. Unlike the earthly high priest, we read, we learned that Jesus is a high priest forever, forever, and that means forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He offered up prayers, he pleaded with God, and he learned obedience through suffering. Then, at the end of chapter 5, the author stops his argument for a moment, and he begins to address the reader. And he says something, I think it's rather convicting. He says, by this time, you guys, you should be teachers of God's word. But instead, some of you need to go back and be taught the elementary principles of the oracles of God. 
You guys, you've been walking with God through Christ long enough, but you're still having this idea of, I want to go back to Judaism. You should be teaching these things, but instead you need to go back and learn them again for yourself. And to clarify it, he said, you're like babies drinking milk. You're not eating solid food. You're just, you're just, you're just nursing on these little, these, these, they're important principles, but you, you're not getting past them. You're not understanding the deeper things of God. And I, he paused for that moment to say, listen, what I'm about to share with you is deep. It, 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 we're, this morning in chapter 7, we're going to go into some of the deeper things of God. If you're a new believer, you might not understand all of it. You might get, just get part of it. And that's okay. If you're a seasoned saint, been walking with the Lord for a long time, you should understand this. You should know these things. You should at least be able to grasp them, or at the very least, have a desire to know them. I want to grow through. I want, I want to understand these deeper things. That's what he was telling. Then in chapter 6, as he warned, after warning in chapter 5, in chapter 6, the author laid out the perils of not progressing in our Christianity. What happens if we don't progress? He spoke of the danger of falling away, but he also proclaimed a hope of better things to come. The hope of a promise in Jesus Christ, the great high priest, our great high priest, not according to the tribe of Levi, but according to the, the tribe of the order of Melchizedek. As chapter 6 closed, the author proclaimed this. Chapter 6, verse 19, he said, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It's both sure and steadfast, and it, which enters the presence behind the veil. It leads us directly to God, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we come to chapter 7, the author's turning back to this topic that he first introduced in chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This was shocking to a Jewish person. There was only one priesthood. It was a Levitical priesthood according to the tribe of Levi. This would somewhat confuse them. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter proving this argument. We'll learn in chapter 7 that the religious system that had been in place for 1,400 years that included sacrifices, rituals, a priesthood, feast, all these things is now being replaced by a better way, a better solution, a better way of coming to God. The old system was this way. Now I'm instituting a new system. It's a better way for mankind to come into the presence of God. I forgot where I was there. There we go. Jesus is not like the Levitical priesthood. He doesn't come from the line of Levi. It's completely different. He's from an altogether different order of priests, of the order of Melchizedek. It's an everlasting priesthood. That means there will be no future priesthood, no difference, no changes coming on. His is everlasting. With that in mind, let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all that's a tithe 10% first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem which means or meaning king of peace without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. So, here we're introduced again to Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Where is he mentioned in Scripture? I think it's important we go there, so I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 14. Very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. 
We're going to pick up in verse 18 once you get there. Genesis chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me give you a little background onto what's going on in Israel. Or it wasn't Israel at this time, but what's going on into Abraham's life. Abraham's nephew has been captured. He's been taken, uh, captured by a, a group of Syrian kings. Abraham has gathered some of his servants, about 300 of them, and he's going to pursue this confederation of Syrian kings. The Bible says he pursued them as far as Dan. If you've been to Israel, you're going to Israel with us in 2020. We're going to visit the city of Dan. The actual city gate is still there. It's been unearthed. You can go see it. It's as far as Abraham went is where he recovered his nephew Lot. All of the women and children that have been captured, he's bringing them back to where he was dwelling. And as he comes back, as he's on his way back, he's got all the people with him. He's got all the stuff with them. He's on his way back. And then we pick up there in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That should be familiar to you. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. And he said, blessed be Abram. That's Abraham. His name was later changed to Abraham. Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, that's who it is, Abraham, gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tithe or 10% of all that he brought back. Now, interestingly enough, this is the only historical mention of Melchizedek's life. That's it. Just eight verses 18, 19, and 20. That's all we have. There's not a whole lot written about him. But here we learn some things about Melchizedek. Some very important things that we'll, we'll continue with. Melchizedek brought, what did he bring with him? Bread and wine. That should, that should wait a minute, isn't that communion? Don't we, don't, isn't it based on bread and wine? These are the very same elements Jesus used when he instituted communion with his disciples at the Last Supper. When he ushered in a new covenant, a new way of doing things. They shared bread. This is the bread. It's, from, it's symbolic of the body, which is broken for you. The wine is symbolic of the blood, which is shed for you. So he's ushering in a new covenant. It also tells us there in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem means peace. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's likely that he's a physical earthly reigning king, but he's probably ruling and reigning in Jerusalem at the time. That's where he's probably, his, his kingdom is set up. It says Melchizedek blessed Abraham. In other words, he spoke a blessing over top of him. And it says that Abraham gave a tithe or gave a percent of what he had to Melchizedek. Why is that important? Because you're going to come to learn, if you don't already, the greater blesses the lesser and the lesser gives tithes to the greater. That's the principle that's being laid out there. Clearly, Melchizedek holds a greater position than Abraham. Now, remember, the Jewish people, to them, Abraham is the greatest in the Old Testament. Okay? Now, here in Melchizedek, we're seeing somebody that Abraham himself is honoring greater than himself. That's why it's going to be important. Melchizedek blessed him, and Abraham gave tithe. Now, there's one other place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek appears. And you don't have to turn there. Just listen. It appears, he appears again in Psalm 110, verse 4. And this is written by King David. It's written about the, it's a prophecy coming about the Messiah. He's writing about the Messiah's reign, meaning we know it, Jesus is the Messiah. He's writing about the reign of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says this. This is what David wrote. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So here we have Melchizedek before Abraham. Abraham's honoring Melchizedek. And then hundreds of years later, David writes, and he goes, listen, the Messiah, he's going to be a priest forever, but he's going to be according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's probably confusing to someone Jewish to read that. What do you mean? I thought he'd be from the Levitical priesthood, the, the tribe of Levi. Remember, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons all occupied land. One of those sons, Levi, he gave birth to the, the group that would become the priesthood. They were all priests. So why wouldn't he come from, from Levi's tribe? Keep, stay with me on that thought. We're going to see that unwind and unfold for us. According to David, he told us the Messiah would be a priest forever. No ending. He would continue on, and he would be from Melchizedek's line. Now, Melchizedek existed before there was a Levitical priesthood. You know, if Abraham is coming back from rescuing Lot, there has been no Isaac yet. There has been no Jacob. There has been no 12 tribes of Israel. There is no nation of Israel at this point. It's just Abraham and his family. And so in Melchizedek is existing before the Ten Commandments, before the Levitical law, before they, want, before they leave Egypt and wander in the dead. This is all way before that. And with that place, at that moment, Abraham bless, or Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives to him, signifying that Abraham understands Melchizedek is greater in authority than he is. Okay, that's going to continue on and important. Now, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. Everybody with me so far? I'm going to tie this all together at the end. If you're confused, just hang in there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to start from the beginning again just to uh, keep it in context. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Okay, here in Hebrews, now we know a little bit about Melchizedek, where he came from, okay? Here in Hebrews, we're told a little bit more about Melchizedek, okay? Melchizedek, it says, is a priest of the, of the God Most High. So we've already learned he's a king of Salem, likely the king of Jerusalem. But then there's something interesting. It says that he's a priest. He's a king and he's also a priest. And why is it interesting? Because in Israel, there was a division between, we could call it church and state. All right. We'll just call it, that's the way we understand it. Kings were forbidden to serve as priests. They didn't want the king serving in the temple or the, 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 the tabernacle. It, it, you, you didn't mix. You didn't, you didn't do that. The king could not be a priest. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, there was a king who decided he wanted to be priest. His name was King Uzziah. He decided, I'm going into the temple. I'm going to do the job of a priest. And he was struck with leprosy. God made it very, very clear. Kings are to be kings and priests are to be priests. However... According to this order of Melchizedek, the king is also a priest. And what we're going to come to find out is not only is he a priest, he's also going to be a prophet. The king will hold the position of priest, prophet, and king. Melchizedek held all three of those things. Since Melchizedek was both king and priest, he was from a different order of priests. Nobody in the Levitical priesthood could hold those positions together. They could be king and prophet, David prophesied, but they couldn't be king and priest. So, Melchizedek stood 
outside of the requirements of the Old Testament law because he existed before them. You guys with me on that? He's not under the law because he existed before it. The law would come after him. It also tells us there that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, if you've figured out this is Jesus Christ, you're going to see the Jesus in this. He's our high priest. But I think it's important that righteousness comes before peace because righteousness is the only true path to peace. We have to be made righteous in Jesus Christ and then we receive his peace upon our life, upon us. Some people look for that peace in a vacation, in some time away, in a relationship, in a family, in some other earthly method. They try to find it, but you can't find that anywhere else. There's a peace that comes by following being a Christian, by following Jesus Christ, that surpasses all understanding of everything else. You can't find this peace in the world. It doesn't exist. We come to Christ. We receive his righteousness by the blood that was shed on Calvary. But we also receive the peace. Peace among ourselves, but also peace with God. It works both ways. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is a priest and he is a king who had neither beginning of life nor end of days. And he rules forever. It's in Christ we're made righteous. It's in Christ that we find peace. Amazing picture he's painting here for us. As we move into verse 4, the author is going to make the argument that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And he's going to use the Hebrew scriptures that we just read to prove that. So the idea is, to a Jewish person, Abraham was the greatest man. Okay, And he's, the author here is going to say, no, 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 there's one greater than Abraham. Well, how do you know he's greater? Because Abraham honored him as being greater. That's the argument he's going to unfold here. Look at verse 4. Now consider, consider how great this man was. This is Melchizedek. To whom even the patriarch, he recognizes Abraham as the patriarch. Even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth or a tithe of the spoils. In other words, if Abraham gave him a tithe of 10%, then he had to be great. He had to be. Verse 5. And indeed... Those who are sons, who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. All right. The reader here might be tempted to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, hold on, hold on. The Levitical priesthood receives tithes too. You know, I go to the temple, I give a tithe, I give a 10%. I, they, the Levitical priests receive tithes too. The author says, yes, but it's from their brothers. It's from their brethren. It's from the people that are like them. They all came from the same line from Abraham. He said, Melchizedek is someone who did not come from Abraham's line. He, was at, he existed outside of Abraham. And since he blesses Abraham, and since he, Abraham pays him tithe, he's got to be greater than Abraham. Abraham recognizes it, and that recognizes Melchizedek as being greater. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> now beyond all contradiction, you know what that means, right? Now beyond all contradiction, there's, there's no other way to read what we're about to read. Okay? Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, the Levitical priesthood, mortal men receive tithes, but there, Melchizedek, he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. 
Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I know some of you guys, this is where the Bible drives me nuts. I don't understand what it's saying. Listen, the Levitical priests were descendants of Abraham. So when Abraham met Melchizedek, they were still within the loins. They were still contained within sight. They hadn't been born yet. So technically, they're still within sight Abraham. This is what he's saying. And since they're still in the loins of Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, they too paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's, that's the argument he's putting out here. Now, as we move into verse 11, we'll, we'll learn why this is going on. We're going to learn it's Levitical priesthood. It was not perfect. It was not complete. And we're going to learn there is a new priesthood that's unfolded here, one that will last forever, where the high priest doesn't just sacrifice for you. Christ did that on the cross, but he also helps you in this life. He walks with you. See, the old priesthood, they could interpret the law for you. This is right. This is wrong. Keep this feast. Don't do this. Don't do that. But they offered no effort in helping you accomplish what God has called you to do. The new priesthood in Jesus Christ says, yeah, I'm going to tell you how you should live, but I'm also going to dwell inside of you, and I'm going to help you accomplish those things that you need to do. One's better than the other. That's what's unfolding here. So he says there in verse 11, therefore, whenever we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what's it there for? In other words, in light of what I just told you, in light of the argument I just laid out that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? In other words, if perfection, if we could get the relationship that we need with God, if we could mature through the law, why would there need to be another order? Why would David say about the Messiah, he's coming from a different order? He's going to be according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron. You see the difference? He's laying this out for two different things. God would never introduce a new priesthood if it were not necessary. He would never make that, he, he doesn't make a mistake. He would never introduce an inferior priesthood. The mere mention of the order of Melchizedek shows that God wanted the priesthood to change. There was, there was a change happening. Why couldn't the priest just come through the line of Aaron? Because God was doing something different. He wanted to, God was changing the way that he met with mankind. It was something that God was doing. Why? Look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. Under the law, the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi, according to the priesthood of Aaron and the law of Moses. Under the law, Jesus could have never been priest. You realize that? He could have. He, he, did, he came from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. He wouldn't, under the law, he would not fulfill that role. He has to be outside of the law. That's why he's coming from the, or he came from the order of Melchizedek. With the new order of priesthood comes a new set of rules, so to speak, on how mankind is going to meet with God. Stay with me on it. Do you remember the symbols, the things that Melchizedek brought out to Abraham? What were they? Bread and wine, right? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, 
which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. At the Last Supper, he said, this wine is a symbol of my blood, which is shed for the new covenant. It's a new way I am doing things. This bread is a symbol of my body, which is broken for you. So as his blood was shed and his body was broken, he's saying, I'm doing something new. And this has been planned since Abraham met Melchizedek. Hopefully the light bulb didn't, wait a minute, you mean God was, this was all planned from the beginning? Yeah, back in Genesis chapter 14, God said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to institute a priesthood. I'm going to do all this, but that's not going to fulfill what my people need, so I'm going to do it this way. And Somebody always goes, why did God do it that way? I have no idea. I'm not God. I'm just teaching you what it says. I can't tell you why God does what he does. But, but here's what I want you to see. God's hand was in this when Melchizedek met Abraham Hundreds and hundreds of years before David said it's going, the Messiah is going to come through the tribe, through the, through the order of Melchizedek, through Christ comes on the scene hundreds and hundreds of years later and fulfills all of these, all of these things. It's, it, should, it should kind of short circuit your brain and go, whoa, I didn't know the Bible was that accurate. Wow, that's incredible. It's a new way of doing things. Look at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. In other words, Moses didn't talk about a priest coming from Judah. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Last week, on Thursday night, we were studying through the book of Matthew. We came to chapter 27. In verse 1, it said this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. These chief priests were from the line of Levi. From the priesthood that was Aaron. Aaron was from the line from Levi. It's from his priesthood. Okay, all from Aaron and the, and, the, and the priesthood, the tribe of Levi. They plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Yet when Jesus was crucified, they did. They put him to death. And when he was buried, and when he rose again, and he conquered death, he had an endless life. His life continued. They all died. The tribe of Levi, all the priests, they're all dead. There's no one still living. None of them. They're all dead. But Christ is still alive. He has an endless life. He earned the role of priest by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. He fulfilled this role. And it's evidenced by his endless life. He still exists today. He overcame death. He overcame hell and the grave. Who's better equipped to usher his people into God's presence? The old way or the new way? The Levitical priesthood or Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus Christ presents a better way. It's a new way. Look at verse 18. For on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. Why? Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. And that word perfect means mature. On the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law is the former commandment. It's weak. It's unprofitable. It can only tell us right from wrong. It can't help us accomplish or live out the law. The law is valuable because it does tell us what's right and wrong. It's God's perfect standard. But it's not ultimately intended to be man's connection with God. 
It was temporary. Paul, Paul called it a schoolmaster. I want to show you, what if you want to live apart from Jesus Christ, I want to show you what's required of you. This is the law that you must live by. This is what he said. It's, intended, it's never intended to be the basis of man's walk with God. Why? Because it doesn't save you. It only condemns you. A law can't save you. It only says you're wrong. You're wrong. You missed that. You didn't follow that one. You missed that one and that one over there and you missed that one. Where Christ says, I know you're failed, but I'm going to save you. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of that penalty that you, have to, that, you, that you would have to pay. Notice on the other hand, he said, there's a better hope, a better way to draw near to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Remember, the readers of this letter, they were thinking about going back to the rituals of Judaism. Should we keep the feasts? Should we go to the temple? Should we, sell a, should we, should we hold on to our Jewish roots? Should we hold on to those things? Just like them, we would be wrong if we were tempted to build our Christian walk on the law or the practices of Judaism, although some do. Notice what it said there. It said the law is annulled, annulled, or it means set aside in the sense that it no longer is the dominating principle in our life, especially in our relationship with God. When we look back at the Jewish things, the feasts, and we should see the beauty, the fulfillment that Christ made in them, but we shouldn't then, we shouldn't be, we should be drawn to them because of Christ, Christ, he fulfilled those things, they're impressive, and look what God did, but we don't need to go back and, and, and celebrate them again. We have, we have Christ, we have this new way. The Greek word, annulled. It's the same word, it appears twice in the book of Hebrews. It appears again in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, and it appears, it's translated as the words put away. Here it's annulled, there it's put away. And it says Jesus has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus has appeared to annul sin. And here we also see the law being annulled. Your sins have been annulled and the laws have been annulled. They've been put away. What a beautiful picture we see here. In both places, the annulment is absolute. There's no reason to go back to them. We don't need to go back to Judaism. We don't need to go back to those things. Focus on what's, bef what's before you is better and greater and more effective in your walk. Don't go backwards. That's what he's telling these, these, the, author, or the readers of this letter. In Christ, we have a better priesthood. One commentator wrote this. He said, let all legalists mark this. The law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. Let the Seventh-day Adventists mark. The law made nothing perfect. Let all those who dream of the law as a rule of life remember the law made nothing perfect. You can make rules for your life, but they won't help you follow the rules. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to tell you how to live, and I'm going to dwell inside of you, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to help you accomplish what I've laid out before you. Which one's better? I want the rules, Lord. No, 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 no. Don't go that way. In Christ, we have a better priesthood. We have a better high priest. We also have a better hope. What do we do with it? We draw near to God. You see, he's changing the way man interacts with God. No longer through the old priesthood, now it's through Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus, not in the law of Moses or in our ability to keep it. Our hope is not in the sacrificial system or the keeping of feasts. It's in the sacrifice that Jesus made and the communion that he established under the new covenant. Don't go backwards is what he's saying. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he, was, but he with an oath by him who said to him. In other words, the Levitical priests, they became priests because of who they were. But here we're going to see that 
God made an oath about Jesus. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, meaning the Messiah, meaning Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The priesthood of Jesus was established with an oath. It was an oath that God made. God said, I am doing this. Okay, the Messiah is not going to come through the Levitical priesthood. He's going to come from the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 told us the Lord has sworn this. And with Jesus as our high priest, he said there's a better covenant. There's a better way. There's a new way. Verse 22 said Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant for us. What's that word surety mean? The ancient Greek word translated surety, it describes someone who gave security, who consigned or co-signed for a loan or a guarantee, to guarantee payment on someone's behalf, someone who put up bail for a prisoner. Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant between man and God. And yet they still want to tell you that all roads lead to God. There's only one that leads to God. It's through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, under Moses, the priesthood was constantly changing. Why? Because they died. They were people. They, 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 they would raise up for a period and they would die. Under the law, they served from age 30 to age 50. Then they were removed from serving anymore. And if they lived that, they lived that till 50, they would serve till 50. If not, they would be done serving. There was, it was constantly changing. Jesus, it says, will continue forever. And therefore, his priesthood is unchangeable. So someone comes to you next week and goes, yeah, all right, here, I got something for you, all right? We had the Levitical priesthood. We have the priesthood according, according, according to the order of Melchizedek. And now I, I found a new priesthood I want to tell you. No, no, it says right here, it's unchangeable. It's not gonna, it's, it will not, it cannot be changed. It's impossible to be changed. It's going to live forever. He's going to continue forever. And because he continues forever, notice what it says there. It says he's able to save to the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. Read it carefully. It means he is able to save all the way out. All the way to, to, there is no end. He's able to continually save. Since he is a high priest forever, he can save forever. Now, I've heard some pastors say that he's able to save to the guttermost. Meaning, no matter how low you get, he can save you. And, And no matter how far away from God, he can grab a hold of you. That is absolutely true. But that's not what the scripture is saying. What this scripture is saying is he is able to save you all the way into the end, to the as far as uttermost, as far as you can go, he's able to save you. Who? Who can be saved to the uttermost? That's the question. Look at verse 25. He told you. Those who come to God through him. Those who come to God through him. And look what it says. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is it crazy to think that if you're a Christian, God is praying for you right now? Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. Think about that next time you think, I'm all alone. No, you're not alone. He's with you. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. And he's able to continually pray for you. 
to the uttermost. He's making intercession for them. To who? For those who come to God through Jesus Christ. What if I come a different way? Then it doesn't apply to you. You're not not saved. If there was a different way, he would not have had to go to the cross. But when you look back, you go, wait a minute. Way back in Genesis, there's going to be a different order of priesthood that's going to be greater. God says, I'm going to do something greater, but first I've got to do this. And now I'm instituting the better, yet people still want to go back sometimes. And that's as he's writing this letter to those believers that would want to go back. Hopefully their mind is being short-circuited. Remember, he said, you guys can't understand the deep things of God. This is pretty deep stuff. But yet it should also take you and go, wow, I can't believe God's sovereignty is weaved through the Bible like that as a thread from beginning to end. It's just flowing beautifully. Back in chapter 6, we saw the falling away of a believer. Here we see the security of a believer. When we come to God through Jesus and he is making intercession for us, it said he saves us to the uttermost. And someone might be tempted to say, wait a minute, Rob, I was here when you taught chapter 6 and you said that it's possible for a believer to fall away. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. Chapter 6 of Hebrews very clearly says that. And I explained it the best way I could. Well, how do you reconcile the two? How do you put the two together in your mind? I don't. I don't understand them. There's some things in the Bible you go, I I just, I can't reconcile that. I go with what it says. I believe what it says. Wait a minute. It's like God's sovereignty and man's choice. How How do you reconcile in your mind? I can't. You see, if I choose one, then I have to exclude these verses. If I choose here, I have to exclude these verses. I'm not willing to exclude any verses in the scripture. I'm not willing to redefine them or reinterpret them to fit what I want it to say. But I am willing to say, you know what, God? You're bigger than I am. You're greater than I am. I, it, I really can't wrap my mind around who you are. So I have no problem with you saying something to me that looks mutually exclusive and going, I believe them both. Because I trust that whatever God's doing, when I look at this chapter and I see that his hand is in the order of Melchizedek all the way through David, all the way through Christ, and now there's a better way. And we have the, we have the beauty of looking back over history and watching this play out. I just go, wow, that short circuits my mind. Yes, Lord, whatever. If that's what you say, I don't have to be able to explain it all the time. But I do have to be able to believe it. Paul was perfectly secure in his salvation. He knew where he was going. If you're saved and you blow it Saturday night, you don't have to come to church Sunday morning and get saved again. That's not what the Bible teaches. Those things aren't there. But what it does say is that he's able to save us to the uttermost. As far as we need to go, he'll go with us. Look at verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Wow. Who is holy, harmless, that means innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for he this is Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself (sighs) for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Beautiful words right there. These character traits, he's holy, innocent or harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He has become higher than the heavens. He doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices. No need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he never sinned. These character traits were never found in the Levitical priesthood. They they weren't there. But every one of them is found in Jesus Christ, our high priest, as a Christian. Isn't that incredible? Some people think 
that Melchizedek, they say that he's a type of Christ. Types are illustrations, they're analogies, and like all analogies, they correspond to a person or to a thing, and they're compared to each other in certain ways, sometimes in only one or two ways. In other words, the bronze serpent in the Old Testament was a type of Christ that was lifted up on the pole and Christ would be lifted up and those that looked to the serpent were saved, those that looked to Christ would be saved. Certainly this is true. The sacrificial lamb is a type of Christ. Christ was our sacrificial lamb. That is true. Melchizedek, they would say, who you read in the Old Testament, they would say he is a type of Christ. And that is very much true. But can I suggest to you there's another position on this? Others, including myself, when I look at Melchizedek, I say, oh, wait, there's something more here than just a type. There's something more. He has no beginning. He has no end. And the argument would be, no, he says he was made. The word made doesn't exist in the, in the Hebrew. It was added later in our English translation. He, it was he was like the son of God. Wait a minute. Here we have a picture. We have someone in the Old Testament has no beginning, has no end, who's righteous, who brings peace. They would say Melchizedek is a type. I would say this is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's called a Christophany. That's what it's called. A theophany would be an appearance of God like Moses at the burning bush. A Christophany would be an appearance of Christ. I think because he brought bread and wine, which is what Christ brought to the Last Supper. I think we have a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. When you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was one like the Son of Man. Again, like's not there. It's the Son of Man. I think it's a picture. It's a Christ. It's the Christophany. It's Jesus Christ appearing before he's born in Bethlehem. You know, Rob, that can't be. How can it not be? This is God. The Old Testament is telling us what the New Testament. You, you have to understand the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. What a beautiful picture of God's hand reaching out to mankind from the very beginning, saying, I'm going to make this way for you. I'm going to show you these things. And we're living in a day and age where we can go back and go, we see it all unfolded. You see, they didn't see it. They didn't have the ability to look back 2,000 years from Christ on back into history like we do today. And when we do, when we look back, it should blow your mind. I personally believe that this picture, this person, Melchizedek, was ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. It's a foreshadowing of Christ ruling and reigning in Jerusalem someday. And he brought out bread and wine. That's our communion. That's the beginning of the new covenant. What an incredible picture the Lord gives us through his scriptures. Don't neglect the Old Testament. There's very, very valuable information there. And the high priest that we have is not making sacrifices for you. He's already sacrificed himself. He's sitting at the right hand of, of the Father, interceding on your behalf, on my behalf. It's already accomplished. He's already done it. He, he's purchased us. He's bought us at a price. He's our guarantee for the believer. And yet somehow in our minds, we can get so crowded with all of the other stuff of the world and life that we lose that beauty of that, that part of us that goes, wow, God, you're incredible. God, you're, I can't even come up with adjectives to describe you, Lord. It's unbelievable. As we, as we, that's what I do when I study chapter 7. Hopefully, you've got a picture of that. And if you're sitting here this morning, you go, I have no idea what you just said for the last 45 minutes. Then you just tell everybody at church we talked about Jesus today, okay? It'll, it'll be just fine. Just tell them you talked about Jesus. Hopefully, some of you saw this and went, wow. I didn't know that Jesus didn't come from the Levitical priesthood. I didn't know there was another priesthood. I didn't know God had planned all this out from the beginning. I, did, I, I learned something today. Hopefully it just rattled your mind. You, hopefully you're leaving here with, a, a, with, you're more impressed with God than ever. That you just got an insight into his character that goes, God, how could anybody doubt you? That's my prayer. So let's pray. Father, Lord, as we 
walk through these scriptures together. As we look at this beautiful chapter of seven, of we see your plan unfolding over thousands of years. We see your faithfulness. We see your sovereignty at work. But at the same time, we see what we have the day that we live in, this new way, this better way, this new covenant, the high priest that we have. May we never add anything to what he's done. Lord, it's by faith alone that we're saved. May we never change that. May we never have to make that more difficult. Instead, may we simply walk in that faith. Lord, I just pray this morning that we would leave here with a greater acknowledgement of who you are, that our minds would be short-circuited as we continue to study your word together. And Lord, if by chance there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they've never given their life to you, hopefully they would see your love for them through this passage. Hopefully they would be willing to make a decision to make you their high priest. They would choose to follow you. They would ask you for forgiveness for their sins. They would forever this day follow you, Lord Jesus. And you would come alongside and indwell them and help them accomplish what it is they were created for. Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for loving us and for this plan. May we walk faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.